Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast, where we focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. I'm your host, Jaron Gerald. Welcome back, guys, to another episode of the Push Dose Medic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and like always, thank you for your support. This week, I'm going to be doing a two-part series on diabetic ketoacidosis and HHNK. And if you didn't know, that stands for hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketoic acidosis. I think it has a different name now, like HHNS or HHN. But either way, we'll be discussing a form of DKA that doesn't involve acidosis. So let's get started. Like I said, we're going to be talking about DKA, or diabetic ketoacidosis. This is a very common call in the pre-hospital world and in the ER. It seems like at least one time a shift you're going to deal with a DKA patient. So although our pre-hospital treatment is limited, we can study the pathophysiology behind it and know why this is such a serious condition. Now, patients that present with DKA are often our type 1 diabetics, and if we know type 1 diabetics don't produce insulin, it's an autoimmune disease where the body actually kills the beta cells, which are the cells that produce insulin, and these are most common found in our younger adults. Most of the time in our younger adults, we'll see these children in DKA due to the new onset of diagnosis of the diabetes. In the older population, it's often contributed to poor insulin management or poor diabetic control and eating habits. So diabetic education is extremely important and should be taken seriously. Through my clinical rotations in the hospital, I've actually sat down with a within the education seminars for pediatric diagnosis, and the educator and the family are fully vested. As you can see, this is very important to make sure the child and the parent understands how to control diabetes so they don't end up in the hospital with DKA. And like I said, with our older adults, it's most of the time due to a non-compliant diabetic, someone that's forgetful. Uh, Unfortunately, they can't afford the medications and just overall poor management of the disease. So these patients can present in a multitude of different ways, including abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, polyuria, which means they use the restroom a lot, polydipsia, which is the extreme thirst, and even more extreme cases, you'll have lethargy, an altered mental status, and comatose. Most of these signs and symptoms are kind of circled around the body trying to operate in this acidic state and also having no energy. And you'll understand why our body has a lot of glucose and no energy the further we break this down. So the clinical factors actually diagnose decay are the presence of hyperglycemia, ketones, and metabolic acidosis, which is just going to be a low pH. So normally we have glucose that's traveling through our bloodstream from the nutrients that we take in daily. And the key for this glucose to enter our cells is insulin. Insulin's our key player in this whole process. Now, once insulin binds with the glucose and enters the cell, it can then undergo glycolysis in the Krebs cycle, and bam, we have energy in the form of ATP. So along with helping this glucose enter into the cell, insulin also acts as kind of like a bodyguard to the fatty acids that are trying to enter the cell as well. Now, when we don't have insulin production, like we would see in a diabetic, glucose is not able to enter the cell, 
and normal energy production through glycolysis is actually halted. So in this case, the body goes into somewhat of an internal starvation mode. Not a true starvation mode, because if you're the patient, you're still eating, you're not hungry, but an internal starvation mode where there is no nutrients, there is no glucose for your body to use as energy. So there's glucose available, but it's not able to be used by the body. So our body starts to break down those fatty acids and amino acids that come from our fat and muscle cells within the liver. And it's worth mentioning the liver is the only way this can happen. And this is called glyconeogenesis. And what that means is the making of new glucose. So glyconeogenesis. As this is a form to make energy, it's not very efficient and it's not safe long term. So the formation of this energy through this process gives us a byproduct of ketones. In result, we form ketoacidosis. And this was what really sets DKA as DKA. Along with this process, we have other regulatory hormones like glycogen and cortisol that are broken down into the liver to make glucose because, remember, our body thinks it's starving. So it's going to break down these other molecules to make glucose for our body to use. Unfortunately, this cycle keeps going around and around as our glucose stores are being released, but our body is not able to use them. There is no insulin to unlock the key for glucose to get into the bloodstream or into the cell, rather. So this causes the hyperglycemia and the continuation of blood sugars to rise and rise and rise. And speaking on ketones, this is one factor in the diagnosis of DKA. So some patients actually may have elevated ketones, but not be a diabetic. So some other cases you might see ketoacidosis is extreme illnesses like post-op MI, strokes, or even sepsis, where we have an increase in stress response and we have not enough insulin to overcome that response. A couple other ones are alcoholism. Alcoholics are commonly in ketoacidosis and when we're in starvation mode. When our body is in a true starvation mode, maybe in a survival setting, we obviously are not taking in enough glucose for our body to use. This causes the fatty acid breakdown and the ketone production. And lastly, you may see ketoacidosis within some toxic ingestions like isopropyl alcohol, glycols, and methanols. And you should be familiar with those if you've ever studied Goldmark or mud piles with wide anion gap metabolic acidosis. So like I said earlier, there's a multitude of signs and symptoms to look for when interacting with a DKA patient. So let's break down those signs and symptoms and figure out why they persist. So some symptoms include the polyuria and polydipsia. The glucose is elevated. The kidneys are basically overworked. They're unable to reabsorb the elevated amounts of glucose that our body's storing. And this leads to something called osmotic diuresis. And basically, this is when the kidneys just dump excess glucose into the urine. And we're not normally supposed to have excess glucose in the urine. And as we know, water follows any higher concentration. So when we have too much glucose, this leads to the excretion and loss of water. And also with the depletion of our electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and chloride. Now, you can go ahead and assume that with all this excessive excretion, that our bodies inherently are going to become dehydrated and more or less hypotensive. These DKA patients are often very, very dehydrated. I've seen literature say 5 to 6 liters, up to 7 to 10 liters. As this patient excretes urine and becomes dehydrated, 
the body will inherently attempt to compensate with polydipsia or increased thirst. So next, let's talk about lethargy, altered mental status, or even a coma-like state, and why this is here. Well, it's pretty simple. In later states, we have a lack of insulin, which means we have a lack of glucose that's in the cells, which means there's no ATP production. Now, our body is pretty picky on energy, but our brain loves glucose. So when there's no glucose production, we get a mind fog, and eventually we go into that comatose state. Our body's receiving no energy and is trying to operate in this acidic environment. So we'll start to see these altered mental states, lethargy, and you know, in severe cases, the patient will be comatose. So our pre-hospital treatments for low blood sugar hypoglycemia are pretty simple. We give them sugar, we educate, and most of the time we get a refusal. Now with hyperglycemia, especially DKA, these patients more or less have to go to the hospital. These are not patients that you can quickly rehydrate and get a refusal from. So our pre-hospital treatments include, first and foremost, your basic ABC management and fluid replacement. Now, if this patient is altered or in a coma state, airway management is going to be very important. Now, these are patients that you do not routinely want to intubate because their main compensatory system is going to be their rapid respirations to offload all that CO2. So pre-oxygenating and intubating these patients come with more diligence and care than a normal patient. But your basic maneuvers is to suction out secretions, put them in an upright sitting position, and maybe even an NPA can greatly benefit these patients. But our main goal here after that is going to be our fluid replacement. Like we said, these patients can be very dehydrated, so IV access and normal saline replacement is your main goal. So I have heard in the past that normal saline resuscitation in these patients can cause a hyperchloremic state and create more of an acidotic state in the body, but yet in most pre-hospital settings, LR or anything else is not carried. So you have to use what you have. And furthering on my reading, this really isn't an issue. Most of the time their chloride is low and we are not really worried about the acidity of the saline at the time. Now, due to the massive amounts of saline and resuscitation we'll have to do on these patients, they do come with some side effects and risks involved. So too much or too rapid normal saline can lead to cerebral edema. And also, further down the treatment line, we start to use a hypotonic solution, 45% normal saline. And as we know, hyper, hy, sorry, hypotonic solutions bring fluid into the cells to cause the cells to swell a little bit. So too much of this, too rapidly, can cause fluid shifts and increase intracranial pressure. So if you're taking one of these patients in a facility and you have that saline hanging, you always want to be aware of any kind of altered mental status or any changes neurologically and just overall monitor these patients and make sure they aren't getting too much fluid too fast. Another fluid you might see is 5% dextrose being administered, and this is more in the later stages of management. And this is usually when the glucose levels are below 300, certainly around 250. And this basically maintains the glucose, gives it a more controlled drop, and this also prevents cerebral edema and rapid hypoglycemia. So don't be alarmed when you see a dextrose solution hanging on someone where we're trying to reduce the sugar. We do want to reduce it, but when we get to the later stages in treatment, we don't want to slam them down to 80 or 90 from 300. Now, it's also worth mentioning, especially in the interfacility transport area, that history of heart failure or kidney disease 
These patients need to be monitored a little bit more since they have the tendency to retain fluid. So volume resuscitations in these patients are usually done with a little bit more caution and maybe a little slower. After we volume resuscitate these patients, further down our treatment line, we have to address this acidosis, this metabolic acidosis. So let's talk about that for a minute. As I stated before, these patients are in a wide anion gap acidosis. Now, if you're in the transport world, you can actually calculate this off of a Chem 7. I learned how to do this in one of my ECHO classes, and I found it very helpful and easy to do. So on your Chem 7, what you want to do is take the sodium, and you want to minus the chloride and bicarb together. So add your chloride and bicarb, and bicarb on a Chem 7 is expressed as CO2, and then minus those from your sodium. Anything greater than 12 is going to indicate that you have a wide ion gap acidosis. This, along with testing for ketones, is how they determine if the patient is in a true DKA state. Now, something interesting I learned uh, not too long ago was off of another podcast, the Flight Bridge Ed podcast with Eric Bauer, and he was talking about beta-hydroxybutyrate. Now, it's not a new test, but some hospitals don't have the ability to test it, or if they do, they have to send it off. Now, this test is becoming more available to hospitals, and it's a more abundant and more accurate test to test for ketoacidosis. Now, we know that beta-hydroxybutyrate is one of the ketones that is produced in the fatty acid breakdown, and it's the most abundant and shows up the fastest. So when they test for this, they're looking for a value greater than 3. Now, with this value being greater than 3, along with the hyperglycemia, they can go ahead and assume that this patient is in DKA. It's a very short, interesting episode, so I will link it down in the show notes for you to listen if you are interested in hearing about it. So now that we know that your body is in an acidotic state, your body will try to compensate for this acidosis in a few different ways. First, your internal buffer system will accept all those extra hydrogen ions, and what that's going to do is create carbonic acid and exit your body through respirations. Hence, those deep, rapid breathing patterns called Kussmaul respirations. And like I said, this is their main compensatory mechanism to offload all that CO2, to get rid of all that extra acid. So we have this acidotic state, and how do we fix it? Now, this is where insulin treatment is really important. Insulin basically decreases the glucose level, but also normalizes the pH and the acidosis. Insulin's also important to pull the potassium back into the cell, but you have to be careful that you don't create a rapid drop or rise in the potassium while doing this. Now, total body potassium can actually drop through the polyuria effects, so you're actually peeing out all your potassium, but your blood serum potassium may increase due to the extra hydrogen ion bleeding into the cells and the potassium leaving the cells. Before insulin administration, the potassium levels usually have to be above 3, 3.5 before insulin's given. If not, a potassium replacement is usually started first, and this is always in a drip form for at least an hour. This is never given in an IV bolus form because that's how they do lethal injection, so you don't want to kill your patient. Now, it's important to monitor your potassium throughout your insulin, and that's also going to be how your insulin is dosed. So as the insulin is given, it drives the potassium back into the cells. So you may have an influx or reflux of potassium as you're giving the insulin therapy. So let's recap treatment. First, let's take care of our ABCs. Have an airway adjunct in, 
maintain secretions, or just simply sit the patient up. Not all of these patients are going to be comatose. I would say probably half of them can maintain their own airway. So next is fluid resuscitation. We want to make sure we give these patients lots of fluid because we know inherently they are dehydrated and may be hypotensive. After we fluid resuscitate these people, we want to fix the acidosis. And the way we fix that is through insulin. As we drive all the potassium and the hydrogen away and back where it's supposed to be, over time our pH will normalize and finally our lost electrolytes can be replenished. So in all, you can break that treatment into three categories, volume replacement, insulin therapy in conjunction with monitoring potassium, and electrolyte replacement. So some of these treatments may not be available to you in the pre-hospital EMS world. If you do inner facility, you may or may not be able to start insulin and maintain potassium. That's really all up to the program that you work in. But at least you know the signs and symptoms of DKA. You know the pathophysiology of how it works in the body and actually how to treat it. And that's going to wrap up this week's episode on diabetic ketoacidosis. Stay tuned for next time where we'll go over HHNK and the differences between that and DKA. As always, I want to thank you for the support. Don't forget to check us out on the website for t-shirts, mugs, stickers, and other swag. Check us out on Twitter at Medic Podcast. And don't forget to come find me at Fast 20 on May 19th and May 20th. As always, thanks for listening. Have a great day.